kingdom come and your will be done through uh, Fredericksburg and around the world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And as you're seated, turn in the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2, going uh, verse by verse, section by section through this. Titus chapter 2, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 10. Titus 2, 1 through 10. And and we're going to talk about sound doctrine today. But as we look at that, we see that it is that term, sound doctrine, although we tend to think of doctrine as being a maybe an abstract thing, it shows how it's immensely practical. So uh, Titus chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word? But as for you, teach what accounts accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much, slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please be seated. Well, today I want to just talk a little bit about success, and particularly successful Christian living. Um, I was reflecting on, on a picture that came up in my Facebook feeds. You know how, if, if you use Facebook, you know every like year, two years, eight years, it shows a picture from the past. And, and this one picture came up recently, and it was a picture of me and my two sons fishing. Now, if you know anything about me, is that I'm not a fisherman. I'm, I'm terrible. And I actually remember this trip, uh, particularly because we got a boat and we went on a Mott's run not far from here. And I just, I don't know what I'm doing. So I put on some lures and we got a little boat. We just kind of raced around the whole lake and I caught absolutely nothing that day. And and so, you know, as I was thinking about this sermon, I was thinking about success and those things um, in light of our past today, I thought, you know what? The fact that I didn't catch anything didn't determine the success of that event. Okay, now for some of you it would have, but not for me, because I'm not a fisherman. But what was the success of that event? I mean, the success of the event was being there with my sons, being involved with them, um, and just being able to do this one experience, whether they remembered or not, they were little at, at the time. You know, and so I was thinking about how sometimes, you know, things that we don't often think are a success on the surface of it, you know, when we come back later, we realize, you know, maybe there was more success in it than I thought there was. You know, I want, that's what I want to kind of keep that in mind. And we think about success, we look at our passage today. Because as we think about success... As we sometimes wrestle with wrong definitions of what success is, it, it ends up putting an enormous amount of stress on us 
and, and wrong kind of stress. Like my whole definition of success for, was for that trip was, are we going to catch a big fish like this big? You know, I mean, it, that was a lot of stress to put on myself for something that's not going to happen. One, I don't even know if they're there. Two, I don't even know how to find them if, if they are there. But, you know, I come out, you know, just a wreck with everything instead of realizing the good things that were part of that time. Now, I want to think about that and success in light of our, our Christian life and our Christian walk. You know, what does successful Christian living look like? You know, that's because uh, some people define it ways which create enormous burdens on themselves. Oftentimes, if we define it by our, our feelings, successful Christian life is defined by the way I feel. If I'm a Christian, then shouldn't I, shouldn't I be feeling better than I am? Or maybe the ambitious Christian said, you know, shouldn't I be doing something more significant and changing the world? You know, maybe I'm missing out on things. Or a really depressed person might come up and say, I'm stuck and, and nothing can ever change. Nothing I do matters. Right? The wrong definition of success ends up putting on burdens. And burdens, uh, workspace burdens, which God has not created in there. Now, what we need to see in the passage we read today is that true spirituality grows up in ordinary places. It's fostered in ordinary places. And, and that's how the Spirit of God works, by making supernatural place, supernatural changes that show up in ordinary, uh, in, in ordinary places. And we shouldn't look down on that as being less spiritual, thinking that, that the true power of the gospel is shown only in miracles or super high emotions or, or, or things like that. But we see how the gospel gives power to kill sin, how it gives the power to lay aside selfish ambitions, to death, and to live our lives for Jesus Christ in the ordinary paths of life that he's put us. I mean, there is Christian power in that. That's not to take away ambition. It's not to take away a great desire to, to make Christ known. So we heard this wonderful testimony about missions today. Not to take away ambition to do those things, but to recognize that without the Spirit of God working in the ordinary parts of life, with the, making those parts of our life successful, is that we might see all these accomplishments or all these high emotions end up really being nothing. You know, we need to see there's a foundational work of the Holy Spirit, which is behind anything that we do, and especially in those ordinary parts of life. Now, as we look at this letter, this letter of Titus was written uh, to help him, to help Titus address some problems that were going on in the church. We've seen, as we went through chapter 1, a number of instructions that were there. And now in chapter 2, he gets to some more instructions. In fact, if you look at verse 1, he says that Titus, Titus is instructed to teach sound doctrine. Well, what is sound doctrine? And it's interesting to see where it goes next because verses 2 through 10 go through ordinary living in a way that honors God. We may not always think of sound of doctrine in that way. We might think of it again as abstract ideas or, or great concepts, but we recognize that sound doctrine is the taking of God's truths and being able to apply it in our way of thinking and then in the way that affects the way that we, we, we live. I mean, there's an end to the way that we live. Now, this is important because there's all kinds of strange and unhelpful ideas that were going around the church. We looked at them last week. Uh, chapter 1, verse 14, uh, speaks about people building their Christian life based on myths or the commandments of men, self-help routines instead of, of Jesus Christ. They're adding stuff into the Christian message, thinking that they needed that to be better, needed those things to really be successful. 
Maybe they wanted some kind of higher life. Maybe they wanted some sort of victorious Christian living. There are all kinds of things that people think that Christians should add into in order to be really successful. But these verses show us the focus of the church is to help people know Jesus, to learn from him, and to let faith change those ordinary parts of their, their lives. It's pretty simple. It's ordinary. But as you get to know what Jesus does in people's lives, it becomes extraordinary. We're called to be godly people in our relationships. People participate in good works in the world. They were, they, they were called, this church that Titus was, was helping get started, uh, they were called to be different than the Cretans that were around them. This Cretan society, which was full of violence, full of deception, full of laziness. But the Cretan Christian was, call, or was called to be different. The Christian there was needed to be different. And so he says we need sound doctrine. That's what they need to receive. The doctrine that changes the way we relate to, 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 to others. The way, the doctrine that changes the way we relate, relate with God. Even the way we relate with ourselves. There are bad ideas all over. We need to come up with what's sound, what matters. And again, where he goes to is the ordinary parts of life. You know, many of you have been to a funeral. It's good to go to funerals. Uh, we need to go to more of them because, you know, we realize that, that people don't always care about how much we accomplish if we make a wreck of our personal relationships. I read one person who said, at your funeral, people will not recall what you did. They will only remember how you made them feel. But also, our doctrine is part of our Christian witness. Everyone in the world is trying to make relationships work. They're trying to make marriage work to help children succeed, to be successful in the work that they do, to master their own life and their own habits. And when the power of Jesus Christ comes into a life, the Holy Spirit works in those ordinary places, you'll be able to tell others how the power of God transforms you and how it can transform them too. It's instantly relatable. All right, so how does this passage connect with ordinary living? And what we saw here is it gives a list of character qualities and behaviors for six different groups of people. There are six different groups of people who are listed here. Uh, The first one is older men. We see that in verse 2. Then it speaks to older women. We see that in verse 3 and 4. Then it speaks to younger women. We see that in verse 4 and 5. And then we see it speaking to younger men in 6. Then we see it speaking to Titus, like a pastor, an overseer inside the church. And he speaks to him specifically in 7 and 8. And in verse 9, he talks to slaves, uh, bond slaves at the time. In fact, at that time, about one-third of the Roman Empire were slaves. And so it was very common to have slaves there. It wasn't, as, as I understand, it's not slavery like we had it in the United States, but they were still slaves, and they needed to consider how they, how they worked. So anyways, you have these six groups of people, and he speaks to them about the, the Christian life in ordinary places, right? And specific instructions are given to each. And we want to look at those specific instructions. And those specific instructions are really generalizations that are given, right? I mean, if we don't like generalizations, we may not like some of the things that are written here. Um, but generalizations help because they're generally true. Not always true, but they're generally true of things that we need to look through and, and consider and address. And they were true, certainly in Crete, as he's addressing those things. But they're also important for all of us to consider because, you know what, as you look at every one of those there's something that we can all learn from every uh, one of these six groups. Uh, something we can all think about for our own life and our own walk in the ordinary places of life. So we have these six things. To be honest with you, I think I'm only going to do the first four. So you're going to have to look at the last two on your own because I, I just know how much time I have. And 
how long it already is. So, All right, so let's look at these things. The first thing is some lessons we learn from his instructions to old men. Instructions to the old men, and the lessons we learn there for this is aim for spiritual maturity, not just life maturity. So our aim for spiritual maturity, not just life maturity. Right? We see verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now I wonder, as I read this, what is an older man? Right? Anybody else here want to sign up for an older man? Am I an older man? What do you think? Okay, so I hear some no's. Any yeses? I know some people might give me a yes, but... um, these days, you know, we don't like the idea of being older, do we? Uh, I mean, youth is valorized in the world today. And, and there's a sense we're trying to avoid being old or being perceived as, as old. Well, I mean, that's not the, the view of the scripture as we see this passage today. I mean, those who are older are supposed to be mature. They're supposed to be advanced. They, they're supposed to have learned a few things. And, and they've had time to devote themselves to God and to, and, and to grow in godly things. And they've seen God work inside their lives. And so, so, so it's a good thing. Now, what kind of character are they to cultivate now? And what kind of character we want to see them have already cultivated some of? Again, ordinary things in God-honoring ways. You know, this is not a great call to conquer, not a great call to accomplish. Uh, you know, some of the things that our culture might say about masculinity, um, they're, they're different than what we see inside of Scripture. You know, there's a sense that the scripture says, you know, I mean, God has made you who you are. You know, you, 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 you take those, those things and you work to develop according to the character that's there. But we all have different personal interests and different personal callings. We need to honor God and the place that God has called us and put us in. And so what are the qualities that, that he speaks about the older man? The first thing we see is to be sober-minded. Notice it starts with the mind, right? Not giving in to excessive anger. Not giving in to lust. Not giving into wide emotional swings which affect the mind and the decision making, right? Certainly not giving into drugs or alcohol, but sober minded, able to, to, to make decisions among biblical principles. The second thing we see listed there is to be dignified. You know, it's being, being a person of respect. It's an important quality for older saints. You know, it's really not just for men, it's really for anybody with um, experience and responsibilities. You know, if you look down at verse 7, you'll see the older women are called to be reverent. And in verse 7, uh, Titus, himself as a pastor, is, is told to be dignified in his teaching. It's this sort of dignity, this, te- this reverence that goes out of a conviction that we're created in the image of God. And the things that we do are meant to be a reflection of his goodness, his wisdom, of his glory out into the world. I mean, we are God's representatives out in the world. And it's even greater so when we recognize that Jesus Christ has paid the greatest price for us. He's, he's, he's died on a cross to pay for our sins, to redeem us from sin, and to set us free to pursue righteousness. If God has expended so much, we honor that sacrifice in the way that we live. We just live with gratitude. So we show what he has done, both in creation and redemption, the way we live, and also in the way that we love. You know, we're called to, to live in a way that deserves respect. But yet some people, even older people, can do anything to get attention, to get clicks on a website, act in selfish ways because they think they deserve it. Seek respect over admiration. Seek respect over appreciation. You don't give in to the excessive behaviors that embarrass you or the body of Christ. And love other people. When you're at a certain age, you know, people want to see what worked for you. People want to know that you're interested in encouraging them. 
is a powerful work in love. So you don't have to act like younger, foolish person. You don't have to be crude when you talk about others. You don't have to say everything that's on your mind or constantly express your opinion, but you act in a way that compels respect. Moving on to the third quality, there to be self-controlled. The older man needs to be able to control his actions and his body by the power of the Holy Spirit, according to the Word of God. Especially for older men, if you're angry, if you're consumed with envy, if you're anxious or full of lust, you leave people around you unprotected. If you're selfish or partying or drinking, you leave people unprotected. You cannot, if you cannot control yourself sexually, you hurt the people around you. Some people say it doesn't um, matter what you do as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Well, it does matter what you do because other people are looking to you. You, you have you, Everything you do has an effect on some others, especially if it brings you one direction instead of another. When you could be devoting yourself to good works, it affects others if you're devoting yourself to other things. What else does it say? It also says they need to be sound in faith, to know what the Bible uh, teaches and to live that out. And not to give in to conspiracies or superstition, but to be focused on faithful obedience to Christ, knowing God, worshiping God, being involved with the church, loving families, having good doctrine so they can identify uh, false reports or beliefs that come through, rightly approaching the, the word of God um, for the situations that they face. Our faith is in the power of God, and that's why we remain faithful. There's a great reason to be sound in faith. It means being faithful. And having hope for the future, not giving up and giving in to the fears of the world. They also need to be sound in love. It's not just about being strong or convicted or powerful, but it's to do all those things, maybe to have a strong desire to see the people around them to do well. They seek the, the joy of others in the Lord. We want to see them, others to walk with Christ and to know the blessing that comes along with that. And finally, they need to be steadfast. They need endurance that overcomes challenges and problems and opposition. They don't compromise their integrity when things get hard. I remember reading the story once of a cussing pastor, right? When we got really worked up, right? He's just started cussing. You know, but again, when those things come up, it's, there's steadfastness. Steadfastness. Even when things around me go difficultly and, and, and are difficult, you know, I'm, I'm, Showing a way forward, steadfast, trusting the Lord in that. We need examples of those who've endured challenges and have paved the way through that, and maybe even enduring it right now, knowing that people are relying on you, looking to you as an example, looking to you for where to go and, and how to approach things. So the key thing here is that older men in the church have been given many responsibilities and opportunities. And one of those is to be an example of godliness. As we go through this life, we all need to grow in spiritual maturity. We need to, to trust God in different parts of our lives, different areas of our lives. And we need to ask God to continue to do work of change in us. It's not just maturity of experiences that we need, that we've done this, we've done that. Right? We need more advice, more godly counsel than how to make money or to avoid problems. You know, we need examples of older men who live godly lives. If you've met other godly uh, people who are older than you, you know how much they poured into your life. How they poured in the lives of those around them. The life lessons, the encouragement, showing the goodness of God through times of suffering. It is a powerful thing. And if you know older saints like that, just give thanks for them. I think as we remember Bob and Michael today, reminded of his example, his peace and love of the Lord. 
something we should all aspire to, and our older men should seek to demonstrate those things in their lives. What about older women? What is it that we learn from this lesson? And here's what I'm taking out of this passage, is that your calling is greater than your family. You'll see where I'm getting to here in a minute. Your calling is greater than your family. Now, speaking to older women, the Bible focuses on productive activities, especially once their children are older or are grown. I mean, it is a busy time raising children, right? Now, but once that's gone, what do they do? What do these older women do? Once they're independent, what do they go do? And what is he doing? What I think he's doing here is he's warning against a couple trends. Look at verse 3. It says, Older women likewise would be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. You know, first it addresses in the same way it deals with the older men is the way they carry themselves. Reverence towards God. Dignity in life. Seeing that all of our behaviors are before the face of God. Not to just to appear relevant or approved according to the standards of this world, but to be proved by God. Now, one of the generalizations this passage deals with is the tendency that women have to talk to each other. And for the use of the tongue to shape the family, the community, or the nation, or the church. And the ability that women have to talk and work through things is an obvious gift of women working together. But obviously, he deals with the limit to there. It says, don't slander. It shouldn't enter into the sin. Don't speak badly about others in areas that are not true. Don't speak badly in areas that may possibly be untrue. Don't push things that you don't know about. Don't just speak out of worry, making others around you worry unnecessarily. Hold on to things that would hurt others. Hold those in reserve. Hold those that create disruption unless you know that they're true, unless you know nothing else is being done about it, unless it needs to be dealt with, unless it's necessary. We have the power to destroy a person through the use of our tongue. And God will judge us if we do wrong, and so it's something for us to guard against. That's because the tongue also has enormous power to build up, right? And, and, and to do instruction. The tongue has enormous power to do good. He goes into the third instruction is not to be given to much wine. I think the point that he's getting to is just because she's done having children doesn't mean that she's finished with a life of meaning and of purpose. Instead of living a life of leisure, gossip, and conversation like we might see in the, the lifestyle of the rich and famous or the lifestyle of the housewives, blah, 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 whatever they are, right? They're the older women of the church still have purposeful work. I remember uh, going to Alaska and the salmon were spawning and they were, they were swimming upstream. It was just magnificent seeing the salmon jumping up and, you know, going up these wonderful rivers. Well, you know, as, as you know... Uh, the salmon die shortly after giving birth, right? They die as soon as they can't have any more babies. And you just realize that's not the case with us, right? You know, we, uh, God has created us to live much longer than we have kids. And, and, you know, just think about why. I mean, it takes a lot of work to raise little ones. We need networks of people, grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters in Christ, mentors. It's hard and we need help with this. It's part of the body of Christ. And that's why he goes on to express then the critical role of women within the church of Christ. They're teachers of younger women who are in the, the struggles of relationship. You know, I, you know, women are effective teachers. You know, if I go too far in talking about women in this sermon, you know, y'all will say, well, you're not a woman. You don't know how it is. Now, I don't know that's the case. You know, the Bible speaks about women. You know, word of God applies. But, you know, that would come up. Maybe you're thinking that right now. 
But, you know, woman-to-woman ministry is not hindered that way, is it? You know, the older women have been there. They've, they've learned the joys of obedience to God. They've known the struggles and suffering of, of life. And they have encouragement to pass on. And so an older woman can never say, I, have, I, don't, I can't have kids anymore. I don't have grandkids. I, I don't have a purpose. I'm just here to exist. I'm just here to enjoy my life until I die. I mean, that's not it. When the family, when the family situation changes, she has a role in the lives of younger women young families to help them to succeed, to do well. She teaches. She prays. She's part of a covenant family. She's part of a church and doing that interactive work together. As we get older, we need to see that God still has a purpose for us. It's increasingly about other people. We have the opportunity to pass down key skills and thoughts to one another. You know, we need to build relationships, share our lives with other people. You know, it's a big part of our men's ministry. It's a big part of our women's ministry. And sometimes we just need the initiative to get out and to get involved with others in this way. All right, so the third thing I want to look at, I want to take our lesson from the younger women. Lesson from the younger women is that this is that your call will usually prioritize making a home. Verses four and five. The next topic is the young women. What does faithfulness look like for them? says this, verse 4, So train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, so the word of God may not be reviled. So if a young woman, he says, is to be, remain faithful, God, God calls her to love. Calls her to love. That's the first thing that, he, that God calls her to. And yes, even wives and mothers need to be reminded to love. It's kind of a surprising instruction to me. I, I have to be honest. I, I think of women in a Mother's Day sort of way. I mean, you know, you're all great moms and you're great wives. And that's just my, like my default understanding. And so to see, well, you need to be reminded to love husbands and, and children, you know, it kind of comes as a surprise to me. Maybe you say, no, I know why I need to do that. You should have seen what he did last night. I need to remember to love that guy. But, you know, but, but the children, you know, really need to, uh, reminding that. I mean, I heard some laughing, so maybe, maybe there was a little bit of that last night too. You know, there's a natural love that's given to women for their children. There's a biological even way of love that's given for women to children. You know, it isn't even uniquely godly or Christian to, to, to love children. It's pretty natural. And so, so what's the point that he's getting to here? Now, the Greek has something to say about it. You know, in Greek, there's like four different words that are used to express our human word love. And these four different words describe different aspects of, of, of what love looks like. You know, there's agape love, which is the unconditional, sacrificial kind of love. Well, it doesn't use that word here. There's storge love, which is kind of that natural family bond that you have with a child. It's not talking about that love either, but it does use the word philo here. Philo, actually we use it in philosophy, right? The love of wisdom is what philosophy is. And so when, she, when it says here that she is to love her husband, to love her children, you know, it's basically she needs to teach the loving, you know, the love of husbands. And she, she needs to teach younger women the love of children. You know, it's that sort of friendship kind of love. It's that appreciation. It's that respect kind of love that, that, that goes into relationships, and this is the point I think that he's getting to, that the older women need to help the younger women to know practical ways of loving their children, loving their husbands. You know, they, they'll be skilled in caring for husbands and children. Like a philosopher is, is skilled with, with thinking. That's easy for natural love, a natural love, to become impractical and even 
unspiritual. A lot of parents have a natural affection to their children, but it gets twisted by self in selfish ways to get something from their kids instead of giving something good and godly to their kids. I mean, kids live through, or parents uh, sometimes live through their kids. They have unfair expectations of their kids, right? As if they get something from what their children do. It's something we all need to learn is that godly Christian parenting and even godly marriage is that is that love is not an automatic thing. Not the Christian kind of love. Not the godly kind of love. It's just not an automatic thing. Because of sin, we, we twist relationships and we can use them, th- them sinfully. That's why the older women are so important. You know, they have some experience and successes and failures. They need to be able to speak about God's word and how it should be applied in practical ways. And it's the same thing when dealing with the loving of husbands. You know, what does it take to have a, a good marriage from a woman's side? She can't forget her husband once the kids come. She has a role to continue um, in the things he finds loving. I mean, it may look different than she assumes it looks like. I mean, men or women are different, and we don't always understand or know each other. And again, good mentorship can be a part of that. You know, the man needs a continued companion, a partner, a helper in his work. And if a young woman needs help, she has an older woman in her corner to help her with that. So let's look at some of the other items that are mentioned about younger women. There is a call to self-control, the ability to control body, emotions. There's a, there's a call to purity of mind and body. There, there's a call to be a worker in the home. Remember how the, the Cretans were lazy? You might remember that from chapter 1. It seems that that laziness has entered into the home. It was culturally honored to be lazy. But in a, in a family, the, the biblical family that he's writing to, to encourage and to build up, you know, he points out that her work in the home is really important. It's part of their partnership. It's part of her ministry. It's part of her hospitality. It's part of her care. We, we move away from that so much in today's world. We don't honor the keeping of a home. It's dismissed as secondary and of lesser importance. We don't recognize it improves communities and it improves the nation. We don't value it or appreciate it as we should. It's an honoring thing to make a home. It's an honoring thing to keep a home. It goes on to say that she needs to be kind, to put practical love in action for the good of the society, her community that she lives in, both in her family and out in the world. You know, these things are, you know, again, it usually goes through family. That's often the default uh, situation. We recognize it, that, that these are instructions are given to younger women generally, even if they don't have uh, children in the home. She should be attentive to the personal needs of the people around her that she can meet. We need to be careful that we're not too busy as a family that no one has a chance to be kind to one another. As you look back to passages like 1 Corinthians 7, it shows the power of, 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 of the single life and the ability to get engaged in the lives of and, and kindness and love of the people that are around us. But it's something that we're all called to. And finally, she needs, it says, to be submissive to her own husbands, to her own husband. This means she needs to put her energies and efforts in the mission that God has given the family. Ideally, a husband and a wife forge that mission together. Ideally, he is a good man that communicates well with her, but they have a role together in God's kingdom. And notice it doesn't say that she has to be submissive to all men, just her husband. It's not that she's less than a man by nature. It's just that she enters into a particular covenant relationship and where she agrees to certain roles when we enter into marriage. To work with her husband and not against him or not apart from him. 
So as we wrap all this section up, I, I think the important thing to notice for everyone is the centrality of the home. Men need to see this. Women need to see this too. In fact, this is kind of almost a center point here. If you look at the instructions given to any groups, you know, the home really is emphasized over and over, um, right here in the center with the most amount of words which seem to be applied to it than, than anything else in the section. And I think it really shows a center point to the discussion. You know, you have older men, you have older women, their focus is on helping homes be successful, and then younger women help your home be successful and then deals with the younger men. It's almost like a sandwich. And right in the middle there it seems to be the important part. Really, want, really wants to get to. Do things so that families prosper. Do things so that families thrive for the sake of the gospel. Whether you're man or woman, your family matters. Bring Christ into your family. You have a role to play in it. And regardless of your role with that, it'll take self-denial. It will take work. But it pleases God when we do the things that God calls us to do. All right, so now let's talk about the fourth group. And the fourth group is young men. And what, what's the overarching lesson I take from this is that self-control is a foundational virtue. Verse six says this, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. All right. Now when, you know, when I read through this and I study it and I think, you know, why does he expect so little of young men? Right? I mean, did you kind of think that? Like you have all these instructions to the older men, all these instructions to the, to the, to the, uh, Older women, all these instructions to the younger women, and then he looks at his younger women's husband and he's like, hey, just be self-controlled. <laughs> now, it could be just, you know, natural authorship. Is, you know, he's already mentioned a lot of things, right, that are there. And he's slowing down, and he's focusing on one thing. I mean, older men are like older men in training, right? I mean, we're all going to be there, Lord willing. And those are the qualities which we're all ultimately to develop, right? But what's the one thing, the number one thing, that young men need to focus on, and self-control. I mean, it really is that simple. I, I think that's what he's getting to. Learn to control yourself. Learn to put your whole self under the mastery of the Holy Spirit. You know, that's what self-control is. Biblical self-control is obedience as empowered by the Holy Spirit of God and putting yourself under his power. Stop giving yourself over to your sinful passions. Stop giving yourself over just to your desires. And the number one thing, in light of that, which I want to say today, is to guard your mind against sexual lust and guard your body against sexual sin. It's because if you do not have control here, you won't be able to please God. And you will wreck yourself, and you will wreck others around you. When it deals with sexual sin... you know, the passage that nails it for me is First Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 6. I think we have a screen. Yeah, First Thessalonians 4, 3 through 6. It says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Right? You see that. Control his own body. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Right? I mean, that's, that's scary, right? As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So if you are sexually sinning, you need to stop. Pornography, any other sexual sin, you've got to come clean with someone. I mean, learn to control your desires and put those desires then into a positive direction. Learn a skill. Grow as a person. Serve God. Develop godly qualities. Build a home. Love a woman exclusively. 
You know, put your energy into things that build God's kingdom and investing into God himself. Now, it's not just mastery over that, though. There's other areas of mastery, too. Mastery over your anger. Mastery over your mouth. Mastery over your emotions. Mastery over your work ethic. All these things need to come under the, the control of the Holy Spirit. These are parts of our lives that need to be surrendered to God. Right? Master how to make money, spend money, save money, and give money. That's budgeting. Learn the skill that you can improve the world with. Start a career. and Master the Word of God. Master this book. Know it. Know how to pray. Control yourself. And young men, I mean, you are invited to come along with us in this. I mean, the world may not think much of you. They may not think of much your ability to do this, but we do. We know that these young men who are applying themselves in these ways are becoming older men. We believe that you can become a man of self-control, of honor, and of character, one who pleases the Lord. Now, it's important in this, because I want to point out that older men, that they're told they also need to develop self-control. Younger women are also told to develop self-control, and young men are. I mean, the point is, it's kind of across the board. Do you see that? We all need to develop self-control. Now, if we can't control our own lives now, that we're going to have more problems in the future. And that's why this is identified as a critical fruit of the Holy Spirit. If you look at Galatians 5.22, you see it right there. Self-control is something that the Holy Spirit builds and he grows in our lives as we trust and follow Jesus Christ. Self-control is the result of being controlled by another power. And so if you want more power and more self-control, you need more of the Holy Spirit. And how do you gain more of the Holy Spirit? By denying your sinful desires, obeying out of faith, crying out to God for help in the process. And that's a hard-fought change, but it's a change that God develops in But here's the thing that our passage points out. So I'm going to cut out there. You know, I'd encourage you. I have number five and number six. It's in your bulletin. It goes through Titus's life. It goes through the life of the bond slaves that are there. You know, there's some principles which maybe you can draw out in your personal study this week. You have a little insert in the study that you can read as well and work some of those things out um, over the week. But, you know, again, just getting back to, to, to the starting point. You know, this is sound doctrine. You know, these are the things that make a difference when it comes to showing the power of Jesus Christ. As followers of Christ develop these qualities, our passage say in verse 5 that Christians will not be reviled. It says in verse 7 that opponents will have nothing bad to say about us. And in verse 9 it says we'll adorn the gospel with the glory of good works. Jesus Christ came to transform us. He came to to, to make us new. He came to renovate us so there's something different in our lives. He didn't just come to make us more moral people, right? He came to make us a more God-centered people, more God-transformed people, and to show a whole different priority inside of our lives. And these are matters of spiritual change because they, they address our need at the very place of greatest difficulty, right inside of our own sinful hearts. See, Jesus Christ came to die for our sins. He, he, he rose from the dead. And as we look at a list like this, 
you know, we're going to see areas that we need to grow. We need to see, we may see sins that we need to repent of. We're all growing. But Jesus Christ was the perfect man. He had the character qualities that please God. He did the things that pleased him. And that's why he could be a perfect sacrifice. And as we look to him, we uh, see a whole other way of life. And then we find one for ourselves. We find something to live for because we're overwhelmed by his love. You need this forgiveness. You need the forgiveness of Christ in your life for your past sins or you will stay in your old patterns. But he's given us a new way. And so what do we do? We, we look at our failures. We look at our resistance in developing some of these things. And we say to God, God, I am a sinner. God, I can't do this. God, I don't want to do this sometimes. But Jesus Christ died so I could be forgiven. Jesus Christ died so I could be set free to obey. Help me. Help me obey. I cannot do this by myself. And that's where we find the power to take any of these things and obey God as we grow in godliness. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would strengthen us to do your will. Wherever we are, whatever we have to do, we ask you to help us to be faithful. Uh, we are sinners. We have fallen short. But we thank you for Jesus. He came to set us free from our love of self and to give us a love for you and a love for others. God, pour out his grace upon us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit for our families for our community, for the body of Christ, and for the testimony of the gospel in this world. We ask you, God, for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.